in the 11FS offices in London for episode 99 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance and consumer products. Today we bring you Facebook and crypto, the love story continues, central bank digital currencies, and is your wine legit? Featuring EY and a blockchain. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and joining me is the returning Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how is your field? My field is good. It's good to be back. I was in Singapore all last week, and I'm very happy to be back out of the hot humidity that is Singapore. You were in Singapore with bankers, I believe. I was there with, we had about 250 bankers talking about digital assets, and, and we talked to them about DeFi, decentralized finance. Wow, you talked about DeFi with some complete bankers. That's, um, that's, that's a very interesting way to spend your that's week. That's how we roll. That's how we roll. Uh, before we get to the news, um, I just got to let everybody know that we're doing a special live show to celebrate 100 episodes of Blockchain Insider. Colin G. Platt and I will be in the flesh on stage with some fantastic guests in Level 39 in Canary Wharf in London on the 11th of June. Gr- to grab your tickets, head over to bit.ly forward slash Blockchain Insider Live to register. They are almost all gone. I think there's a couple, well, there's about 10 or 20 left, maybe maybe less. So once you've hit the download button and uh, if you can be in London on the 11th, go grab the last couple before they go. Um, we, we may even end up having to release some more. I think uh, Level 39 have talked about creating some extra space. You looking forward to that one, Colin? I am. I, I, I do have to point out, if this is episode 99 and that's episode 100, do we have a 99 and a half? <laughs> uh, I need to double check with producer Petrate what I think we have a special show when you guys are in money 2020 next week don't we uh, yes, we have a special show, of course, 99.5. Um, you've got to make the numbers work somehow. Um, you know, you've been around bankers. You know how this goes. I, I, I make it work, but I also know that uh, we have a very special show that people should definitely look, look forward to next week. We've got some big name guests that are going to be at uh, uh, this one. So bit.ly forward slash blockchain insider live uh, if you want to come uh, hang out near Colin whilst he's away from his field. And also some serious big name guests getting through the best stories of the year and, uh, well, some surprises as well. So we think you're going to enjoy this one. All right, let's get on with the news. Um, First story comes from BBC. Uh, BBC News are reporting that Facebook planned to launch GlobalCoin in 2020. Uh, So they want to start testing their cryptocurrency, which has been referred to internally as GlobalCoin by the end of the year. Um, They've sought advice from Mark Carney, who, of course, is the governor of the Bank of England, um, and they met with him last year, as well as the US Treasury. Um, And as discussed previously on the show, they want to create a digital currency that provides affordable and secure ways of making payments, regardless of whether users have a bank account. So, Colin, this one keeps, keeps coming up, um, but it's been, uh, I guess it's been a bit more mainstream news in the past week or two. Facebook do a thing. Facebook do a coin. Uh, Where are you at on all of this? Well, we've been talking about it for a while, right? Um, I I think the only real big news is that we have a tentative launch date in 2020, launch year, uh, and a name, at least the internal project name. Uh, I'm still... Try, struggling to try to figure out how they use a blockchain, if they use a blockchain, or if it's just like a crypto souped up uh, we WeChat type money. Yeah, uh, it's hard to tell, right? Um, the uh, there's a number of hot takes that have come out about this one. It's hard to tell what the underlying uh, solution is, um, but it's uh, it's really really difficult. I, you can sort of see maybe what the intended goal is. You know, Facebook have had a couple of cracks at doing payments. Um, I think we've mentioned before David Marcus, who's heading this initiative, was the former CEO of PayPal. Um, before leading this initiative for Facebook, he led the Messenger platform. Messenger has something like 900 million users. WhatsApp has over a billion users. You have two chat platforms there that do not have uh, kind of a native payments capability. And when you compare that with a with a WeChat out of China, uh, you know, for, by Tencent, that's very very different. WeChat is it's a chat platform, but payments are really core to how that thing makes money. Uh, there was uh, there was an article I saw last week that uh, two thirds of the revenue uh, through WeChat is actually from payments, versus all of Facebook's revenue comes from advertising data. So if Facebook is going to get off this drug of uh, using your data. And you know, kind of exploiting that for advertising, and you're know, kind of really going to get serious about privacy. Then, a a new form of cryptography um, might help with that, and b a new business model might help with that. So you can see the strategy, but 
why this versus Venmo? Why this versus my bank? Um, I don't know that they've really answered that yet for, for Western markets, but maybe the goal here isn't Western markets. Yeah. I, I, I mean, if they're talking to the U.S. Treasury, I have to imagine that like at least Western markets and, and Mark Carney, at least Western markets are involved. The, the question I have is um, way back when, when um, the CFTC fined Bitfinex for their margin product and, and essentially it came back and said, when you're doing the margining, um, it has to be a short, short-term period to not fall into the derivatives trap um, or at least the non-financially or physically settled. So they came up with something around that. And essentially what it says is you have the users have to be able to take their private keys I wonder if something similar is going to apply here. Like, can I actually withdraw my private keys for my global coin? Um, or I still think Zuckbucks is a better name. Um, and, and use that outside of their service. Can I hold that so that they can't you know, go back and pull it out from me? I don't know. I, I think that would be an interesting thing to see how that works. I think also if you consider where Google and Apple are on payments, right? So Apple Pay has now got over 120 million users. Um, they've got the Apple Card. You know, they have really inserted themselves into the world of payments in quite an impressive way. And Apple actually have managed to bite into the revenue stream of a lot of um, banks. So uh, when you go and pay with Apple Pay, uh, in Europe at least, about 0.3% of the cost of your transaction on a credit card uh, used to go to the bank. Uh, Apple came along and said, we want half of that. Um, so we want 15 bips out of, out of every transaction. And uh, the bank sort of reluctantly gave that revenue to Apple uh, for the convenience of being able to create those payments. In the US, of course, uh, you get a lot more uh, revenue from uh, this so-called interchange payment which is basically the, what the fee the merchant pays to the bank to acquire the funds. It's all sounding a bit nerdy, but essentially this was how banks made money uh, in the payment space for quite some time. Apple are making quite a bit of revenue off of that. Um, and when, when you consider their device sales are flat, this is a nice services revenue line. Uh, Google, a little bit behind them, but again, sort of a credible player in the payment space. Facebook are kind of nowhere, so this could give them something to, to go compete uh, with those players. But I think you raise an interesting point around that that uh, identity KYC piece. Like, if I've got uh, GlobalCoin, I've probably had to go through some level of KYC with somebody somewhere in order to get these global coins. So does that make Facebook the identity hub for the internet? Does it uh, make Facebook something that's actually a really great place to hack because there's a lot of money in there? Um, and I think it was... Um, it was it was Preston Byrne on Twitter who said, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of projects that that this competes with as well, like um, Alipay and um, PayPal. Uh, if this really did become like true global peer to peer, because there's uh, there's a real question about what user base is currently using PayPal that would use Facebook, um, but but I don't know that Facebook's execution history and payments really says they can get this done. Right, that you got to wonder. Like, your know, PayPal has uh, entrenched number of users. Venmo does pretty well, and each country has its own little peer-to-peer -peer players. Nobody's really done this globally. Um, possibly the only example that's done well has actually been Alipay. Uh, Alipay has gone out of China and is now sort of uh, in the Nordics. It's in the Netherlands. You're actually seeing it start to get adopted across Northern Europe. So. Who knows what uh, what's what's happening? The one thing for me is the next battleground in big tech is around payments, and Facebook has got quite a unique strategy to to that battleground. I, I remember going through China when I went out to Seoul, and I just remember people like paying at vending machines with their faces, and the whole idea of AliPay and all that stuff seems scary to me. <laughs> Welcome to the new world, my friend. I, for one, welcome our new uh, facial recognition overlords. This is why I live in a field, Simon. <laughs> it is. It begs the interesting question, though, like, where will banks play with a global coin? Will they play? Are, are Facebook talking to the banks? Because, like, if, if you're uh, worried about your data privacy as a consumer, banks historically, whilst they're, um, they're not seen as the great bastions of you know, good behavior in terms of how they deal with finances and lending uh, post-financial crisis, 
they are seen as somebody that's not going to try and monetize your data, at least historically. Uh, but Facebook are maybe not seen that way. And are they trying to get into payments? Do they have brand permission to do this? Will, will the consumer buy it? I don't know. Interesting one to watch. All right, next story actually comes from ey.com. And uh, EY are going to help Blockchain Wine Limited build a blockchain platform for wine distributors across Asia and worldwide. Uh, so they've selected EY to build a blockchain solution. Um, and they're going to determine the quality, provenance, and authenticity of new vintage wines with a focus on markets in China, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, and Singapore, where the consumption of European wines is expanding. Um, the e-commerce blockchain that the EY teams developed for Tattoo Wine uh, will help the wine company offer its ecosystem of wine products to distributors and logistics operators and trace the origin of wines. Go on, Colin. I hate it. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I mean, I, this is this is everything that we talked about in the last couple of years about how like um, companies that apparently have no real understanding of like the value proposition of a blockchain are selling other companies um, really, really bad use case ideas that fall over really, really quickly um, and can really, really easily be solved with more traditional databases. Like if all I'm trying to do is allow one company to track provenance through like its supply chains, I mean, the USPS and FedEx and UPS and, and Royal Mail and all these great companies have been like allowing us to scan QR codes and track that. Um, if that's their really only value proposition, like, um, you know, there's a bridge in Brooklyn, I can tell you here. Uh, it, it, this is ridiculous. Like, it's going to be inefficient. It's really not going to deliver anything. It's probably going to be clunky. Like, did we cover the story a, a few months ago about like there was a French uh, company that was selling uh, instant mashed potatoes with essentially the same thing? Like, it's stupid. If here, like that's instant mashed potatoes, and like we're just talking about moving boxes between stores. Here we have potentially really valuable wine, and like you still have the problem in the middle that if you really want to track this, like, and somebody says, "Hey, I want to get that wine out of that bottle and put cheaper wine in that bottle," um, you can still do that, and the QR code on the outside of the bottle is still fine. Um, and if you don't want people to know that you have it, well, you just pay some guy off along the line to say, "Oh, I'm never going to tell anybody that I gave it to you, so just don't scan the barcode." And, the thing will disappear overnight and keep going on its merry way and nobody will notice. Like, And that's permanently in a blockchain. Great. Fantastic, guys. So I'm having a play around on the uh, uh, kind of EY website, and I found an article that says that EY Ops Chain has tokenized more than 11 million bottles of wine for multiple clients. They're also tokenizing chickens, eggs, and other fresh produce. Um, and they are um, tokenizing mozzarella cheese um, of documented uh, protection of origin. Um, and by working with this, they're able to better understand uh, kind of the, the transparency through their supply chain. I mean, it's one of those whereby, like, I, I sort of get it and I sort of don't. Um, there's a few things here. Is uh, the one quote that comes to my mind is the classic rich crook, which is um, there's only so much fun you can have with your own blockchain. Like doing this on a blockchain only really makes sense if I have lots of people and I can't easily centralize them onto one database. Um, and and I've got this kind of governance problem of where the data sits and data needs to persist. Uh, do, the POCs by themselves always tend to sound ridiculous, uh, but uh, this one is, is probably a bit broader than that in that there's actually lots of volume going through there. And then once you've got the volume on there, it's what does that allow me to do that I couldn't before? And I think you, you could actually prove or you could have some degree of confidence in the provenance of goods before. Uh, but the difficulty was I really had a piece of paper or somebody else's opinion on it. Uh, what I have now is uh, documentary evidence that we all agree these facts are true and they continue to be true. Uh, I think there's something quite nice there uh, that JD.com has used. So if you remember about four or five weeks ago, we talked about chickens on a blockchain. Um, we're going to keep coming back to that story. Um, JD.com have seen a real sharp rise of uh, kind of sales of chickens, apparently, and other goods uh, because of the ability to reduce counterfeit because of the transparency that brought to the supply chain. So, look, there may be other ways to solve it, but there's something quite neat here about the broader concept of how do I get people to come to uh, consensus about a set of facts? And I would agree with you, 
a blockchain in the traditional sense designed and built as per Bitcoin and Ethereum is probably a really slow way of doing that. Something that uses cryptography to create a Merkle, you know, some, some kind of Merkle tree that allows me to see that we agree to these proofs um, and these proofs are aligned across this, this time and this state. Um, could be quite useful. And I think people throw around the term blockchain when what they mean is crypto and cryptography and this family of technologies. And can the family of technologies that surround cryptography help solve problems in a supply chain? I think they absolutely can. But the marketing terms of the buzzwords are absolute BS. I, I just think it's going to give people this false assurance that um, the what they bought has gone through all these rigorous controls that they can't really assure. Um, rather than going through and actually just doing the audits on who's touching what, are they following processing controls, uh, which would be much better for the end consumer, they're going to go, yeah, well, it's in a blockchain, so it's good. And people will buy that and they'll go, all right, this bottle of wine that I've received in uh, Seoul is the bottle of wine I thought that came out of this vineyard in Italy. Um, whereas they don't like realize that people are getting paid off left, right, and center because they just go, well, we don't need to do those audits and controls because we just assume the guy that picks this thing up and is in the back of his truck drives it over to an airport in Rome, flies it to Dubai, and then somebody picks it up in Dubai and flies it to Seoul, is doing everything the way they should. And like, really, that's what needs to be solved. It's the people problem. It's not the technology problem in this particular case. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really good broader point. Like, we might all agree it's true, but we thought that one actor was good and they weren't. Um, you, you don't solve a people problem with technology. Um, but this episode is brought to you by our three. Shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Not had a shout out for a couple of weeks, and he did remind me of that. Um, and uh, developed by R3, Corda is apparently light years ahead of other blockchain platforms in terms of privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, uh, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type or size across any industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. Uh, for a free trial of Corda Enterprise, uh, you can go to r3.com uh, and check it out. All right, on with the show. Uh, story from Coindesk.com. A Hollywood producer has raised $100 million uh, for a media-focused security token. So Proxima Media, a firm founded by uh, film producer Ryan Kavanagh, has raised up to $100 million for a token that allows the investment in media content. The new token called Proxicoin uh, received notable backing from VC firms, um, and including funds from Hong Kong, and they're also planning to create a stock exchange-like trading platform called uh, Entertainment StockX, or ESX, to help uh, individual film and television projects funds raise via initial public offerings. Proxicoin token holders will also be part of the uh, of ESX, the firm indicated. ESX has deals for listing over 30 major feature film projects and is expected to have a significant share of the 600 major films and television shows shot annually. So, invest in films as an asset class. Interesting idea. Tokens as a way to do that. Colin? I, you know, I actually don't hate this. <laughs> um, I, it, it's a security token, right? So you're buying into a company that they just happen to trade this on a, on a token. I don't know that you're actually using the token. I mean, they haven't released details on that. To back it, it's not like you have to buy a share of movie X with uh, a piece of Proximia token or whatever they call this thing. Um, the actual doing an exchange on these things is something that like informally has happened to my understanding. I'm not like big into that part of the business. Um, but from people that I know that work in the film industry, it's, it's something that's been going on for a long time. And finance is a massive part of the film industry. Bringing a stock exchange to that is, is probably not a horrible idea. And look, if you can get a hundred million dollars because you used a token or just because you had a reasonable idea. Awesome. Um, I think it's much better than like two years ago when somebody tried actually, I think, maybe even accomplished raising $100 million where they were trying to make a utility token out of like, if you want to buy the movie rights to broadcast this thing, use our ICO token, which we're going to then use and fund. That was a moronic idea. This, not knowing enough about the business idea, probably not moronic. Yeah, it's interesting that you've basically made films as an asset class and uh, where this stuff really starts to uh, get interesting is that new asset class space. We've been talking about that for, for quite some time. 
investors generally, unless you uh, kind of really knew people who knew people, this was not an asset class that was easy to get into. There wasn't clearly like a, a Kickstarter for films other than Kickstarter itself. And actually, this this depth of domain knowledge that they appear to have into the films that have been created and broadening the investors that are able to get there. And then a secondary market around it, I think it's a really interesting um, place to be. And, and actually, to me, that's the very, very core of, of where there's, uh, there's something to be done here is look for those new investable asset classes um, whereby you could be bringing liquidity into a market that's somewhat opaque, you could be getting uh, access to yield for investors, and you could be really adding value for all involved. Indeed. Alrighty. Uh, next story comes with the BIS.org, Central Bank Digital Currencies. And the Bank of International Settlements uh, have been publishing stuff for quite some time. This one's about uh, Central Bank Digital Currencies. And there were some interesting takeaways. Um, so this comes from the chairman of the board of the Bank of Lithuania saying... Digital tokens could be used to transfer value between external or retail parties as a form of bank-issued digital cash. Or he noted, wholesale central bank digital currency could contribute to or replace central bank reserves. He pointed out that some central bank-operated wholesale payment systems are in need of replacing as at the end of the technological life cycles. He also said the amount of cash in circulation is declining in some countries. This could mean that one day, even if it seems like a distant prospect, every single person will have access to an account with a private entity just to make payments. So in short, physical cash may go away, we may inevitably end up with some form of digital cash that acts as sort of a claim against your central bank. Um, This probably goes back to uh, where the Bank of England started uh, in Bank of England Working Paper 605, which is my favorite nerd moment, um, is to to shout out that report, which actually comes from 2016, which first proposed um, central bank-issued digital currency as Uh, potentially valuable, not only to uh, retail consumers, but actually they looked at it from a financial market context and in this uh, sense of um, really in dealing with uh, intrabank overnight settlement and how would would you be able to free up some of the collateral that um, commercial banks have to post at their central bank with a central bank digital currency. So you would have uh, you would hold a claim on the the central bank rather than posting a claim on you know something else like a corporate bond or, or whatever else it was as as collateral. Interesting question. They believed it could contribute two to three percent to GDP if they moved to this model, but they also raised a whole suite of questions about doing it. That was one economic analysis. Then you see uh, the moves coming out of uh, Japan, where uh, there's JCoin um, and a number of other initiatives to do the more consumer-led digital cash. Certainly. Cash as something that's digital and centrally controlled will always have limitations. You know, some of the value of cash is that uh, vulnerable communities and, and uh, you know, people that operate in the grey edges of the economy to make ends meet, sometimes uh, who are financially excluded from the banking system, can work with cash in a way that uh, you know, kind of protects them from the rise or fall uh, of, of, kind of uh, their, their work and their income. So there's, there's a whole, it's, cash is such a complex issue, um, and it's really, really interesting to see another central bank playing with this idea. I thought it was a really interesting um, uh, speech that he, he worked down through, and, and you can kind of see his thought process. And what I really liked was he um, started discussing um, the problem and, and what he was trying to solve, and only then did he start to get into the technology. And I mean, it is very far from certain that he says, right, this needs a DLT or blockchain or, or cryptocurrency or whatever it is. Um, it's also far from certain that it needs very traditional technologies. And he started to look at examples in uh, the Riksbank in Sweden, um, the, the Central Bank of Sweden, has actually had an e-corona program for the last two years or so. Um, and the possibilities they've seen, um, whereas Denmark, um, his other neighbor across the Baltic there, uh, had said exactly the opposite. They said, look, this would be horrible for us. Let's not do this at all in Denmark. Um, so he's pointed out that this is going to be a very complex thing. I think that, you know, harking back to our earlier story about global coin, I, I think that there's a lot of things that uh, as these new payment systems start to become 
um, more used, more examined, uh, people will start to ask the harder questions about stability and what actual benefit it brings, whether it's your 2% from the, the Bank of England or whether it's uh, zero, like what Denmark thinks. Uh, maybe it's somewhere in between. Maybe it's you know further away from the middle of those two. Uh, will remain to be seen. But I think uh, it's really positive to see. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. The the chairman from the Central Bank Bank of Lithuania thinking about this from that more analytical point of view. And I think that we need to see more of that and less uh, hooting and hollering about what's the most uh, interesting rocket emoji to put next to your tweets. <laughs> I think it's a fair point. And look, we've um, on our uh, sister podcast, Fintech Insider, we've talked an awful lot about um, you know, cash and circulation. And it, it, what you often see is the cash policy of a country comes down to uh, their political policy. Uh, taking cash out of supply helps you reduce the amount of cash in the grey economy. And if you are the Chinese government, being able to see where everybody's cash is it can help you achieve some of your policy objectives. If you are the UK government, certainly being able to understand the cash in, in supply and let's say you had a, a monetary policy that was super low interest rates and maybe you needed to take money out of circulation at some point with negative interest rates uh, being able to have control of the quantum of money and take cash out of circulation would be it would be a policy instrument that at one time would have been very very interesting um, but you know it's always seen through the lens of, of politics for, for the central banks but then seeing it from the opposite side seeing it from the consumer lens like what does this stuff mean to you or me? Um, and actually, none of this stuff's really live yet. It's all experimental and POCs. And there's probably so much more that you can do just by getting the experience side of it right and then allowing whatever of these systems that is being built to just kind of emerge and just adopting that and working with it and building the services that sit around it. Alrighty, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, Coindesk.com, uh, Blockstream's Samson Mao is launching a space alien gaming token on Bitcoin. There's a headline. Coindesk.com, decentralized domain registry raises $4 million from Draper and Boost VC. Really, really love some of the uh, kind of decentralized internet infrastructure post sort of uh, two internets and, and a lot of the censorship that's starting to potentially appear from various state actors. Um, so this is going to be an area to watch uh, for certain. Um, bcfocus.com, JP Morgan adds a new layer to its Quorum blockchain to increase anonymity. Again, worth a look. Quorum is quietly in the background, uh, looking like it's gaining momentum. So uh, lots, lots to see there. Time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from Fred Wilson, at Fred Wilson on Twitter, and he says, in five to ten years, when we look back and consider why the next big tech sector centered itself in Asia and not in the US, it will be the SEC's unwillingness to create new rules to regulate new assets that will be the cause. Colin. That's awesome. Like, uh, first is Fred Wilson needs to look back now, like five years ago, to when it actually started to happen in Asia. Um, like, if you focus on what's really big, like who's making a lot of money in, in blockchain and cryptocurrency. Binance is is Chinese. I mean, they may be registered in Malta, but it's Chinese. Um, you look at Bitmain, it's Chinese. Um, you look at all these big uh, Japanese companies that have set up around setting up legitimate exchanges. Most of this stuff, with a few exceptions, like Circle and Coinbase, is happening outside of the United States. And that's awesome. Um, like this guy's talking his bo book because... I know he's got Coinbase, he may have part circle, and the SEC has said, look, you need to delist things that are unregistered securities, and that's the law. And he's upset that he can't dump uh, unregistered securities out of his VC portfolio through his portfolio companies on top of retail clients in the US. Uh, too fucking bad. Like, those are the rules, and you deal with it. If you don't like it, things are moving for other reasons too. So, uh, you know, I welcome that uh, technology comes out of more places than just one valley in California. That's, there's definitely something to be said for that. I, I think the the complaint here about uh, kind of what's happening has gained some some real momentum because it does feel like there's there's an arbitrage opportunity for businesses that operate outside the U.S. But the, that opportunity doesn't apply uh, to businesses from the U.S. And and I guess um, this is the risk that we find ourselves at the global level is that uh, the these businesses will go to the areas of least regulation rather than to the areas of best 
interest regulation. Um, and finding that balance is always going to be an interesting challenge. Now, if you'd have phrased it like that, that could have been an opportunity for the SEC to include people within their remit and build an entirely new business line. And also, I suspect that free enterprise in the US will find a way to, to still somehow make good things work. Uh, a lot of the projects and a lot of the talent can still be based out of the US. But it, but it is an interesting point that the center ground of momentum on a lot of this stuff has has started to shift and has really started to move, uh, not just in the last year or two years, but had been for, for many years moving moving kind of in that direction. But the, the people involved in the projects are globally distributed, but where the businesses that are making money is, is typically in Asia. It was on episode 91, we spoke to Anthony Lewis, um, uh, who's now, of course, with R3, uh, but has spent a lot of time in Singapore and in Asia, where, of course, in a lot of countries in, in Asia, gambling has been illegal for quite some time, and cryptocurrency is the closest thing to that that feels sort of legitimate, and people love a deal and they love a bargain. Um, so all of these forces have sort of convalesced around less the technology and more like a consumer appetite for a product that wasn't really available historically. Uh, I still think there's a massive opportunity to shape this next generation of technology though. Um, when we talked uh, a moment ago in the stories we didn't have time to cover, if you look at things like decentralized domain registry, if you look at some of the things like you know, this broader theme of cryptography upgraded, a lot of that still is happening in the US. So I don't know that it's as um, cut and dry as, as, as Fred's maybe suggesting. I, I think he's really just talking about his, his displeasure with the fact that Coinbase is losing revenues because there are, uh, in fact, is, is another US company that hopefully at some point should rise from wherever it's been, uh, backed by ICE, they want to do things right, and they will, if they're successful, likely dramatically uh, take away Coinbase's revenue streams. Because Coinbase's big thing is, we're in the US and we're doing it right. And if somebody comes by, is better funded, is bigger, more well-known, and is doing it right on basic, narrow, vanilla cryptocurrencies, um, the only way you can expand is to go out into these other things. And those are just things that are not legal in the US, for good reasons. I think it's interesting that um, if you look at the early days of the internet, there was a there was a, a message that was used a lot, which was uh, first do no harm," and uh, the. Uh, Christian Carlo at the CFTC has certainly been saying that a lot. And uh, you almost see the CFTC interested in new forms of derivatives and sort of reverting to type and happy to encourage innovation. And the SEC, um, maybe maybe a bit less so because of their mandate to look after public securities. But, but I also suspect that's not uncoordinated. There's a benevolent honeypot thing there of like, how can we get close to you to understand you, but also be aware of the fact that where you impact consumers is very different to where you impact institutions. And we we do have to maintain responsibility as we do this stuff. Um, but I think recognizing the global ecosystem that we do live within, that these businesses could get funded elsewhere and still impact the US consumer, uh, there's a risk on the other side, which is you might not be able to block everything out. If something like a Binance is built elsewhere, that can still have massive impacts on your US consumer. And if you bring down the banhammer so bad on the likes of uh, these businesses that are homegrown, then you lose your best asset for defending against those uh, sorts of businesses on, on the global stage. So um, I don't buy that it's it's entirely, uh, you know, a one-way street here. Yeah. And I'm, what you do see is there was uh, the exchange Cryptopia, the New Zealand exchange that just got hacked, and they had to release their numbers through a lawsuit or through, through filings. Um, and I think like two-thirds of the clients were US-based, even though it was a Kiwi exchange. I mean, clearly it's getting into the US, right? Um, whether these things are legal or not, people are using VPNs or whatever they're using. But I, I just still don't buy the idea that if you have talent that's been doing this for a while in other places, that they need to move to Silicon Valley. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, that globally decentralized workforce is probably one of the best things that's that's starting to happen. And you see this with, with many, many projects. And uh, you know they were based around Zug. They're now based in Asia. Um, that doesn't mean the US has to lose out. Uh, I do think there's, there's room for balance here. Um, the good answer is probably somewhere in the middle. But listen, Colin, you and I can talk about this one forever. Um, and we've got to get to uh, an incredible interview. Uh, I just spoke to Diogo uh, Manica, who's the president of Anchorage. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this interview interview everybody so take a listen to this great so i'm here with diogo from anchorage diogo from anchorage how are you sir i'm doing great thank you for having me today thank you so much for being on blockchain insider um diogo um do you want to just explain to our listeners who anchorage are and, and what you guys do 
Anchorage is the first crypto native institutional custodian. So essentially what we do is we store crypto assets for institutions that want to invest in this new asset class. I think the unique thing about Anchorage is that we're really bringing the best of modern security into the crypto asset space in a way that it didn't have before. I, I guess um, you know, custody is probably worth explaining. I mean, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the concept from a, from a financial services background, but it, but some of our listeners really appreciate when we do brief explainer content. So, um, talk me through um, custody and uh, you know why that's going to be important to an institution. Absolutely, it, it turns out that for this new asset class, crypto assets they are the custody of crypto assets, so safekeeping of one of these assets. It is no longer keeping a certificate, a paper certificate in a vault somewhere. And they depend now on modern cryptography. In particular, they depend on something called private keys. The ownership of this digital, small digital file called a private key gives ownership over the individual or the institution that has the private key over the asset itself. And so now what we've, what we've seen is that crypto assets fundamentally change just the basic fundamental level of the financial infrastructure, which is how do you safe keep an asset like this? Effectively a bearer instrument where the individual institution that owns a private key also owns the assets. And this is why you now need security engineering, large-scale infrastructure, and really a whole different DNA of company to do custody, aka safekeeping of crypto assets, than you needed for gold or other precious metals or even securities. Yeah, and, and custody evolved from sort of um, being a depository. It wasn't just the uh, kind of the way to uh, keep the keep the asset safe. It was also um, think there is a life cycle around that asset. It gets bought, it gets sold, um, and sometimes many times per day. But actually, typically the piece of paper stayed still. Um, so keeping clean title to who who was the real owner of that asset was actually really hard. In the world of crypto assets, that's a little bit different. We we can all pretty much agree which wallet um, you know is uh, held by uh, which asset is held by which wallet uh, because we've got the blockchain sitting right there telling us. Um, but as you say, that that changes the dynamic quite considerably. I often like to think about it as if the key to my house also gave me ownership of the house. Like I'd protect that key a heck of a lot better, right? Um, I, I, and so like playing with that metaphor, you could see why, you know, people started to come up with different ways of um, solving things. So, um, you know, we did a, an episode of Blockchain Insider called Custody is Everything. And I think you can sort of see why for crypto assets, it really is. Like if I lost my house key, I lost my house, you'd really take it seriously. Um, but we've heard this term cold storage kind of pop up, like it's it's the solution to uh, everything. So, um, you know, like hot storage being, I guess it's online and cold storage being something different. Uh, you know, uh, consumers have their wallets, consumers have used exchanges, but help me separate kind of what's going on beneath the surface there. Absolutely. So I, I think cold storage definitely should not be seen as a solution. At, at best, it is a stopgap. And cold storage essentially means that instead of using this crypto asset that, again, is backed by a digital private key and participate in, in the way that is supposed to, to, to be done in interacting with the blockchain and keeping systems that, like our financial infrastructure, allow you to have fast access to these funds, allow, allow you to prove that the funds are still there and interact with them. The first instinct of the first players in the space was, we do not know how to protect these private keys. And therefore, we're going to do what we've always done and candidly what has been done for hundreds of years, which is what I actually call pirate customers. Pirate custody effectively means that you are like the pirates taking these gold coins, putting them in treasure chests and bury them somewhere in an island. And then you have a treasure map that shows you where those, uh, where those chests are. And in this digital equivalent, what cold storage is, is exactly the same. But instead of gold coins, there's USB keys. Instead of treasure chests, there are safety deposit boxes. And instead of an island, you are using a mountain somewhere in Switzerland. And finally, instead of a treasure map, you basically have a checklist. So there are humans going through checklists, moving manually USB keys from offline computers to online computers to actually transact in this new asset class. And of course, this is, uh, this is the first stopgap of the system. There's no way for the most digitally sophisticated asset class that we've created to actually going forward to be institutionalized with pirate custody, aka cold storage, being the way that we're actually going to keep value. 
Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's like you'd invented um, the rocket ship, but you hadn't figured out how to make something airtight. So you you could you could go really fast, but you could never get into space. It just seems like uh, you've got this amazing tool, but you can't use it. Um, or if you do, the way you use it is it, so historic. But I mean, we've been able to protect keys for quite some time. Like keys are not something unique to crypto assets. When we're talking about keys and cryptography, you know, um, public key infrastructure has been around since the 70s and protecting that has been known. So how do you guys do it that's different? I think there's. A, it's worth for us to start a little bit, a little bit back by saying that these keys are, are different. And the reason, even though they're actually the same type of key, the, the treatment that you have to give to these keys is completely different. But first and foremost, obviously, they hold a lot more value. Right. And so you could have a hundred million dollars on a private key holding your crypto asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And before that was not really the case. The second main difference is that there is no key rotation that is possible here. If the key is compromised, there is no recovery from that compromise. It is a hundred percent loss. And so that's the second component here is that it's irrecoverable loss, cannot recover these crypto assets after they're stolen. In a private key in the normal security, uh, info, information security world, you at least have the possibility of doing key rotation and recovering the system. And then the final one, which is slightly more technical, but it is, um, candidly, the most important one is that in PKI, like you described, public key infrastructure, just the modern infrastructure that basically puts the lock, the little green lock on your browser. That's a PKI, right? It's a, a certificate chain that has a private key somewhere on very signs, um, computers and servers that is signing this chain of certificates all the way to your browser. So when you write anchorage.com on your browser, it appears with a little green lock. The reason why these are different is because before in the PKI world, the key is what it mattered, is, is what mattered. Specifically, what I mean is that as long as the key wasn't compromised, everything was okay because you could recover from that situation. In this new world of crypto assets, the key is not as important as the signature. So you could technically have the key being protected in a hardware security module, in a data center somewhere, and be completely protected. However, if that key does one malicious operation, so one malicious signature that is attacker controlled, all the funds move away. And even though you still have control of the key, the key is now useless because it holds no value. So these are the three main characteristics that make these keys really hard to protect. And that's why Anchorage was created, because... We talked about this, right? The, the instinct of humans is to put things in vaults and have physical security as the way that they actually protect value. But there's no way that digital assets will have that. And our, our clients and institutions really want fast access to funds. They want the ability to actively participate in these uh, blockchains. And they want, candidly, a lot of um, asset productivity. So they want these assets to create value for them. They can't be locked in a safety deposit box somewhere, not actually generating yield, not actively participating in these new staking networks, not actively participating in governance decisions. So they really need asset productivity. And this is something that their LPs are asking for. They need to meet their fiduciary obligations by act actively meeting and participating. And so the technology that you need to build to do this, it is very different than the technology that we had to build for the normal PKI world. I totally hear that. That's a huge, uh, hugely valuable explanation that kind of separates uh, some um, some easy to get to misconceptions. And I'm, I'm glad you pulled those apart because uh, I think that context is really helpful, especially given your background. Like you've worked at Docker, you've worked um, at Square in security. Um, what what attracted you to crypto and DLT from you know what what is arguably far more mainstream um, engineering tracks? That's a, a curious question. In fact, the, the way that I would describe this is that I've always been working on crypto and I've been working on crypto for 15 years. So my career really starts by doing uh, me doing a bachelor's and master's and a PhD in computer science, working on distributed systems. In fact, uh, over 10 years ago, and during my PhD, I was working on uh, Byzantine fault tolerance. I was working on distributed randomness. And in fact, I was using Hashcash, which is the crypto puzzle that Bitcoin uses to do proof of work. And so I was actually already working on these distributed systems. And now, in candidly, 10 years ago, a PhD in distributed systems wasn't particularly useful. But now, 10 years later, it actually gives you a lot of utility because it turns out that blockchain and this uh, sliver of, um, it's a sliver of distributed systems as a general field. 
And so after the PhD, I went to a financial uh, company, Square, where I was a very early employee. And in fact, it was at Square that I met my now co-founder, that uh, Nathan McCauley, that helped me create and created Anchorage with me. And at Square, we also worked on private keys. We actually created the first encrypted credit card reader for Square. So the little encrypted credit card reader that you can plug into your phone, into the headphone jack. Uh, we have a patent on it, and we collaborated with the team on creating this. And this was private key management. And then we set up the backend systems that are now moving over $85 billion a year for Square. These were hardware security modules. These were um, uh, high availability systems that integrated with all the card networks. And then after that, we went together to a company called Docker. And Docker is now effectively running our over half of the internet. And we were the people leading the security team in adding security and also adding private key management systems to these distributed systems that are running on Docker now. So if you look back to my career, every single step of the way, I've been working on private key management one way or another for financial infrastructures, for large distributed systems, and from an academic perspective. And so, candidly, when I say I've been working in crypto all my life, I, I have been, in a way, working in crypto all my life. I think it's an interesting mix and an interesting story because you know the, the, some of the organizations you've mentioned there are, are formal mainstream. And um, I guess you more than anybody have probably come across this phenomenon of um, sort of a, a lot of the uh, mainstream developers who are using Kubernetes, Kafka, Docker, you know, modern tools and frameworks inside of cloud and uh, cloud native environments uh, saying, well, you know, I, I can do everything I need to do. Uh, any any requirement you have, I can build it with, with the tools I've already got. What do I need to use a crypto asset for? What do I need to use um, distributed systems for? Um, do I need a trustless environment or can I just um, design design the thing differently? So how do you how do you answer that question when when somebody poses it to you? You know, what is what is the utility of these systems? Is it um, for you a, a curiosity about um, where cryptography is going or or do you see a real utility um, in some particular area and, and hence why you're focusing on it? I do think that as a new asset class, this is something that has never been created before. And people do, they, they do say uh, things like, like you described, but Bitcoin, for example, this store of value that is sovereign is uh, something that is very unique and it was never created. And the aspects of decentralization are core to the idea of a sovereign, uh, a sovereign uh, currency and a sovereign store of value. And so those things are very unique. And I'm a fundamental believer that they have value just out of the fact that you can actually now, you could never do this before, but you can with a few words, memorizing a few words, you can walk, um, you can basically take a plane from the United States to Europe and transfer $100 million in, in your head, right? You can transfer Bitcoin with a brain wallet and you're now moving value across um, regions and across continents in a way that you could never do before. Just that little sliver, that is utility. And so that is actual utility for these crypto assets in a way that there was never before. And it really creates um, creates new ways of transferring value, which are uh, in some ways better and in same, some, some ways worse than the, than the traditional financial system, but really creates another alternative. And having alternatives for how to transfer value that really depend on what your use case is, is very important. Plus, people don't really are not putting a lot of emphasis and the reality of it is that there's not a lot of consumer products right now that make use of smart contracts but smart contracts as an idea a smart contract being able to hold value and being able to hold a crypto asset and being executed in a way that everybody agrees on what the outcome is in a decentralized way that cannot be um, cannot be coerced that cannot be changed by a malicious adversary and is actually moving value that is very also very unique and that is not something that you can just uh, throw some Docker containers in a Kubernetes environment and run it on the cloud and write a relational database um, backed um, web application to actually do. Because that would be inherently a centralized solution that would not give you the ability of the, the everyone trusting what the outcome actually is in that the company behind that specific instance of a Docker container on a Kubernetes in the web app would not actually change the final value. So these things are, this is real utility that we're creating that exists in crypto assets that you cannot actually create with just modern infrastructure.
I think that trustless architecture and that's, um, that sort of anti-fragility uh, within the system, that once you've set something to happen, it will happen regardless of, of one, of, one of the actors uh, having some malintent within it or having uh, some sort of compromise, and increasingly will be seen as, as more and more powerful. So it's interesting to watch. And listen, you've got some pretty important people believing in your mission uh, of trying to um, build build a better custody solution for institutions in crypto. Uh, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, Max Levshin, um, you know, this is this is these are some pretty heavyweight um, guys. One, you know, like uh, what what value have these guys really brought to the table for you? And and two, you know, what was what was it um, what was it that uh, you think that they were attracted to about what you guys are doing? Uh, in terms of investors, they've uh, brought tremendous utility, uh, all the way from help with uh, regulatory issues to hiring to introductions, you know, thinking about the, the strategic positioning of the company. We have a lot of investors on board that provide a lot of utility on the things that they've done before. Some are operators, some are pure investors, some of them are just folks that have worked in the industry for a long time. So that has been incredibly, incredibly valuable to have them on board. In terms of um, what they saw with Anchorage, I think the answer is that they initially, and, and the reason why I say this is because I've been told that this was the case, I think initially they saw the perfect founder market fit. Nathan and I really are the perfect team to tackle this challenge, to store private keys that are worth $100 million because we have been doing this together for so long and we have um, looked and worked on so many aspects of the problem that now creating a system that is usable and that institutions can actually use to solve the crypto custody aspect and they can actually be usable, they can travel the world while approving these transactions without feeling their blood pressure rise every time they interact with an asset is very unique. Creating something that can move assets in a fast manner and that does not require humans to go to data centers and safety deposit boxes to actually retrieve it is also very unique. And this is something that has never been built before. And so they believed that Nathan and I were the right team for solving this particular problem. And we believe they were right. So right now we have uh, clients on board. We have folks like Paradigm that use our systems, Polychain. Some of the largest crypto funds are depending on us to keep their assets safe. And they are big proponents of the system. And by using the system and the alternatives really believe that this is the right investment in the right company. That's exciting times. Uh, Diego, uh, if people are listening to this and uh, they run a fund or they're in an institution somewhere and they want to find out more about you, where do they go to do that? Absolutely. So Anchorage is serving institutions, as you mentioned, uh, funds, crypto funds, family offices. If you're uh, looking for a custodian and someone that can keep your assets safe, but allow you to do asset productivity, staking, participation, then go to Anchorage.com. Brilliant. Diego, thank you so much for your time on Blockchain Insider. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, thank you to Diogo and thank you to the good people at Anchorage. Just as a reminder, listeners, this podcast is made by 11FS and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We create propositions working with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. A lot of the things we've talked about here on the podcast today have really uh, been interesting concepts, but have struggled to connect with customers. Uh, and that's where we come in. Uh, we, we really do make a difference in helping build the products that customers are absolutely going to love. As a reminder, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button's right there. And if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review. Um, Alrighty, Colin, where can people find out more about you, good sir? On Twitter, at Colin G. Platt, all the time. All the damn time. Uh, big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, uh, producer Petrit, uh, Laura, Hannah, and of course, Alex, our editor. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me directly, simon at 11FS.com. And just a reminder to say hi to our friends over at Crypto Compare at their Digital Asset Summit, which is uh, one day after Blockchain Insider episode 100. You can check them out on the 12th of June. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.